0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your presence through your Son and Spirit. That you are about adopting a wide family uh, from every type of person, uh, and you adopt us by grace, your word says, so that we. can enter relationship with you, not by our own earning or striving, but simply out of your good pleasure to bring us into relationship with you and each other, uh, to be the recipients of your love and presence. And as we open your scriptures this morning, would you teach us and would you guide us, we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Acts is a profound story. It is the history of our witness. Uh, The church has roots, deep roots. And so what Luke, the author of Acts, has done is he has collected a bunch of stories that tell us at a glimpse what God did for the first 30 years of the church's life and history. He is telling us in these 28 chapters Uh, what Jesus continues to do by the Holy Spirit through the church. And uh, what we'll see today is that Acts is really a story without an ending. It is an unfinished story. It ends totally abruptly. Luke has been telling us probably more details than any of us really want to know about Paul and his trials and where he's traveling. and, And then he leaves off with Paul, the apostle preaching in Rome and doesn't follow through on any of the details that he's been working on, right? Paul has appealed to Caesar. He's going to go to Rome to face trial before the emperor. And Luke just ends it without any note about what happens. And uh, what we'll see today is um, he awkwardly ends the book so that you and I, as the readers, can continue the story. He ends the book without an ending so that the church can continue the story forward into the next chapter. And so this morning, I want to offer a few thoughts on on this last portion of Acts in general, so this kind of this last literary chunk, and then I want to make a few specific observations on the last chapter and how it relates to us carrying that story forward into its next chapter in Beaverton. Uh, So, first, I want to say this that Acts is a literary work of history, and so it is dealing with the weeds of historical detail. But it's not just history, it's also theology. In other words, Luke, in this literary work, is trying to make claims about who God is and what he's done and what he continues to do. And it means. Uh, very simply, that Luke has organized his story to make a point. Um, I said a few weeks ago that Paul's life is echoing details from Jesus's life. And uh, if I were to tell you I was um, raised by my aunt and uncle on a, in a desert um, farming, and, uh, and then I got a distress call from a Uh, a woman I found attractive but felt a bit too familiar with and then went out to um, a local kind of crackpot to get his take on the story. And then we went to a port and went on a long journey. Like, you, you would know I was trying to map my story onto Star Wars, right? Like, you would know that I was just retelling a new hope through the lens of my own life. And When Luke tells us some of the details about Paul's life, resolutely heading to Jerusalem to suffer, he's saying, pay attention to the story I'm telling. I'm mapping Paul's story onto the story of Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to just point out how uncomfortably Luke maps Paul onto the story of Jesus with just a few details here. Um, I'll I'll just show you a few of the literary connections that Luke is making. Uh, Both Jesus and Paul... Uh, are determined to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, Jesus set out resolutely, it says, to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 19.21, it says that Paul uh, resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Both Jesus and Paul's closest circle of friends and companions didn't understand it and tried to dissuade Jesus and Paul from the journey because it meant death. Uh, The journey section of Luke 9 through 19 has seven references to Jerusalem. The journey section of Acts 19, through the time he gets there, has seven references to Jerusalem. Uh, Both Jesus and Paul get to Jerusalem, and there's a very positive initial reception. Uh, Jesus is received on Palm Sunday very positively. That doesn't last the week. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Paul gets to Jerusalem. He's greeted warmly by James and the other Uh, church leaders, and that doesn't last very long. And then uh, both, it says, immediately went to the temple. Jesus got to Jerusalem, went to the temple. Paul gets to Jerusalem, goes to the temple. Both are seized by what Luke calls a crowd. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, Paul in the temple courts. Both Jesus and Paul stand before four officials on trial. Both Jesus and Paul in Luke and in Acts stand before a Herod. They're different generations of Herod, but they're both a Herod. Uh, Both Jesus and Paul scandalize a group called the Sadducees, a group of religious kind of liberals who didn't believe in the resurrection, uh, by talking about the resurrection. And it creates division among uh, and debate between the religious leaders. Uh, there's a Roman official in Jesus' story that says he should be released because he's innocent. There's a Roman official in Paul's story, or several now, who go, the guy's innocent. We, he should be released. Um, there's a crowd in both stories that say, take him away. And then uh, there's also a narrative at the uh, in the midst of suffering, or at the onset of suffering in an acute way, where Jesus and Luke takes bread gives thanks, and breaks it, and gives it. Paul, in the middle of the storm on the boat, takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it. And so that's just 12 literary connections. There's actually more. As you go through these in your head, I mean, it's easy to lose these details as you read through Acts, but what we want to see is that Luke is very intentional about mapping Paul's story back onto Jesus. He's reminding you at every turn that Paul's storyline actually imitates Jesus's storyline. Why does he do that? Is this just kind of a, a nice way to say Paul's a real special person, right? Which would then leave you and I kind of even more distant from Jesus? Well, that was true for Paul, but not for me. Or is there more going on? I think it's safe to say, given what Jesus has said to Paul already at his conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Paul, why are you persecuting me when he's referring to the Christians that Paul's dragging off to prison? I think it's safe to say that Luke is claiming in these literary overlaps that Christian life, Christian life is not just adherence to a bunch of truths, or moral principles, or behavior, or social commitments, but a a conversion of the whole person by trust in Jesus is coming to now share in the very life of Jesus himself. Uh, One scholar puts it this way, and summing up this section, he says, and just hang with me through the big words, it's okay, Um, Luke is writing a typological history. In other words, he's, he's He's using imagery and symbols and types, the life of Jesus providing the template for the life of the church. This is what he's saying, right? That's what Luke is trying to do. It, it is the Pauline or Paul's theology of the body of Christ, another phrase we have for the church, which is finding here a literary expression in the patterns and cycles Of Luke's narrative. This is what he's getting at. It all drives to this point. Christ is alive and is continuing his own life through his body, that is, his church. This is what he's saying. So it's not about Paul's special status as much as it's about Paul being in Christ, united to Christ as a representative of the mission that the church follows. Let's be honest though, most of us in church don't typically think, yeah, my life is just a mere continuation of the storyline of Jesus. God continues his work through me. That's not how many of us think. That's not our default go-to identity. But it is, of course, what Paul says in Galatians 2:20. He says, "I, Paul, have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, that's this stuff, the meat of your body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or in Philippians 121, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Life is literally found and bound up in his reality. To die is to gain. This is Luke's way of describing what Paul preached, but now he's just doing it in a literary and poetic way. See, I, I, identity for the believer is not what you do. Identity is not uh, what you do or who, what your preferences are or where you work or uh, how much equity you have in the home or the business. These are the cultural handles for identity, but never in the context of Scripture. Identity is always far deeper than that. And for many Christians, acti- identity always gets uh, reduced down to activity. Uh, and so you hear the phrase, I'm, I- I'm not a good Christian, as if there were degrees of belonging to Jesus, Right? I'm, I'm a bad Christian or I'm a good Christian. What that person is talking about is they've put their identity into their behavior and their performance. And so at that level, I'm saying my version of Christianity is built on how I do, All Right. And so this week, I feel like God's story can continue through me because I'm performing well. And for Paul, he says, I was crucified. It is now Christ who lives in me, regardless of whether I'm doing well or not. I'm a Christian because I'm in Christ. And that is not something you can be by degree. It's something you are by immersion. And so uh, I would argue today that if you are here and you think I'm too sinful or too materialistic or too whatever, you're living with shame and not an identity in the gospel. And I want to encourage you today that what Luke is setting up in the last half of his book in particular is that he is trying to map the story of the church onto the story of Jesus precisely because our identity is found in him. Jesus actually says your identity isn't in your fruit, the outcomes. That's what we do. We go, ah oh, yeah, I'm good or bad because we look at the outcomes, the biblical metaphor is fruit. Jesus says your identity is not in the outcomes. It's in your source or connection. And so he says to his disciples in John 15, "Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches." That is a statement of identity. I'm the source and you're rooted in me, therefore, right? This is what you are. Which is why Jesus says to his disciples You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, not go do it. He says, you will be it because I will be with you. I'll put my spirit in you. Are are you with me? All right. And so uh, I am who I am because of who I belong to, who I'm united to by grace through faith. That's who we are. And so the church is not addressed by Paul as sinners saved by grace. The the church is addressed by Paul in his letters as the saints. And by the way, you'll never find in the New Testament a reference to a saint. It's always saints plural. It's always a community. It's always us in him. And so saints is... Another word for holy ones. This is your identity as the church, the holy ones, the devoted, the set-apart ones. And together, we are those who are made holy by our common bond in Jesus. One more quote for you. Marcus Peter Johnson, in his book, One with Christ, says this powerfully, and hang with the quote. He says this, a retrieval, getting back to the central significance of union with Christ, will provide a way for the evangelical church, the church that roots its identity in the gospel, uh, to see once again why the work of Christ cannot be separated from his person, why the gloriously good news about salvation rests in the church being joined to the one salvation, who is salvation himself, and why Jesus Christ is the essence of the church or else the church is no more than a voluntaristic religious club of like-minded folk. Luke is mapping the story of the church onto the story of Jesus and saying, this is what defines you, being bound up in the life of Jesus. And so he is continuing his story through us, weak or strong. And so we come to this story from this vantage point. It's from this place, from our standing in Christ as those who are made holy, not just saved for a future, but actually today set apart for the purpose of God so he can continue writing the story forward in a community of people who have no other confidence than Jesus Christ has saved me, has given himself for me, and brought me into his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit and his people. Are you with me? Okay. So three things here um, <clears throat> that I want to point out in Acts 28. Uh, the necessity of Christian community, the orientation of Christian hope, and the priority of sharing the gospel. Um, Acts, uh, and it, I think we'll get quite practical today. So there you go. That's the 30,000-foot thing that I think Paul's, or Luke is doing in general. Let's get down to what he's doing specifically in chapter 28. Um, Acts chapter 28 picks up with Paul on the island of Malta after the shipwreck that we looked at last week. And there is this amazing episode where Paul comes on shore and it's cold and they're wet and the locals start building a fire. And Paul is a good servant leader. He's not about to just take it easy. He's going to go collect firewood. And as he's collecting firewood, a viper, Luke says, attaches to his hand. And all the locals are like, Oh, he must be a murderer because the sea didn't kill him, so the viper's going to get him, and it's justice coming to get him. And it's this funny little illustration where Paul just kind of flicks it off and just flicks the snake off like nothing happened. They're all waiting for him to swell up and die. And he's like, meh, you know, just flicks the thing right off, and they all think, oh, maybe he's a god, right? And it's this kind of crazy episode. And, And I just have to point out, it is a weird story. I guess say, so, why include that, Luke? Like, what in the world? It's a weird story unless you have an older story in mind. If you have an older story in mind, uh, it goes back to Genesis and Exodus, you'll, you'll know what he's talking about. Um, first, as God brings the creation out of, from the waters in Genesis, the next episode is a snake attack unhuman, right? On, on the humans. And, and it's a poisonous stake, but he poisons through lying, right? The serpent that tries to deceive and does succeed. But this time, the human emerges and is attacked by a serpent and just brushes it off like it's nothing, uh, rather than becoming poisoned by the lie. It's a picture of God's new humanity in Christ having victory not under the curse anymore. N.T. Wright says this that the sea and the snake have done their worst and are overcome. New creation is happening and the powers of evil cannot stop it. Paul may arrive in Rome a bit more bedraggled right, than he would have liked, but the gospel which he brings is flourishing and nobody can stop it. And Luke wants to remind us just how long this story has been in the making and what God is now doing in Christ. And so they go on shore uh, and they share Christ and they share healing in the village and the town sends them off with support and honor. And verse 11 says this, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had been wintered in the island, uh, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Uh, There were these twin kind of patron saints of navigation. Uh, they make up the sign of Gemini, and these were on the ship in a way that was uh, meant to get you where you needed to go. And, and from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up. So we hung out for a day, and then this strong wind came up, and on the second day, we, pu- we came to Piccioli, it's modern-day Naples, and there, it says, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And in this manner, in, in this way, we came to Rome, hosted in the hospitality of the body of Christ. I don't know about you. Well, let's, let's read the next verse. The brothers there, it says, uh, when they heard about us, the ones in Rome, came as far as the Forum of Apius and the three taverns. Sounds like a good place to hang out. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Here's the first point I want to make, the necessity of Christian community. Notice the way that Paul is received. He's received his family. I'm not very likely to invite you to spend the night. I'm fine with you coming over, but overnight, that's kind of for family, right? Like, I I don't know. I mean, there are special occasions, I guess, but that's just not typical. But here are these guys say, yeah, stay for a week, right? Just bring the stranger in with his Roman guard and his traveling companions, and they stay for a week. Uh, And it says uh, that they called them brothers. Uh, In other words, the relationship that's being described is a sibling relationship, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm an only child, so I've had to learn about siblings. And it's been a journey of discipleship for me as I've watched my three interact as siblings, right? And I don't know if we have any other only children in the room that have had to be discipled by community, but let me tell you, the whole fighting thing, like, just feels really weird. And every time I bring that up, Lauren's like, "Yeah, because you got to, you got what you wanted, um, <laughs> all right." And, and so that was that has been interesting. But but uh, you know, like yesterday was like I think the first Saturday where there was just no commitments for a long time. And so we had this living room size uh, blanket fort, and it started as three separate forts. And it's awesome to watch siblings. Because they see, like, we can build Babel. Actually, like, we, like, and and I almost came in and separated them out by languages yesterday as they were squabbling. I was like, no, you're Greek from here on out. You're like, they're like, can we split this up? Because they're gonna, they're going to kill each other. Um, and but yet, that's what siblings do. They're able to work through conflict, and they don't love each other any less at the end. And the modern church, we just find a. Better podcast, or we go to a place that's just got some more stuff going on, or a place where we can hide out better. And honestly, when I look at this room, we actually can notice when we're gone, right? And there's this opportunity to resist the temptation to hide, there's an opportunity to be known and enter into a sibling relationship. And it's interesting that these total strangers and companions, or these total stranger, strangers not only welcome Paul and his companions, but the group in Rome, they actually travel about 50 miles on foot to get from Rome to the three taverns. No tavern is that good, right? You only walk 50 miles on foot for love, right, or fear, right? But they're not in exile. They're going to meet somebody that they've never met, they've only gotten one letter from, and they love them, and they're there to celebrate. And this is interesting, too, because when we look at the idea of siblingship, you quickly discover in just a little bit of Bible study that Paul's main word for the church is not actually the body of Christ or the temple of the Holy Spirit or the ecclesia, the the church, his main word is actually sibling language. It's brothers, sisters, over and over and over. That is his most frequent use or frequent grammar for the church. This sibling relationship of mutual love and forgiveness is his main lens. And so they they get together, and here's what I want you to grasp. Not only does the New Testament not know any unbaptized believer, it also knows no isolated believer. To be a believer in Jesus in the New Testament was simply to be a sibling, to give your allegiance to a king, and to give your life in relationship to the other. Um, It's never in the New Testament just me and Jesus doing my thing. And we live in such an affluent society that we can be very independent until life gets hard. And that often, it's crisis that pushes us towards others. Oftentimes, sometimes that can push us away from others. But uh, to choose to be in community is an upstream practice from the culture we live in. To say that even though I can be self sustaining. I don't have to establish trade relationships or whatever to get by. It is to recognize I can't actually be who God created me to be on my own. And in fact, when Jesus tells the parable of the lost brothers, that's the, the younger brother who goes to his dad in Luke 15 and says, I wish you were dead, so can I have my share of the inheritance? Right, he goes off and he squanders it. The elder brother, is the one who slavishly uh, works dutifully for his father. Uh, They both kind of want the father's stuff more than the father. Uh, But when the youngest son comes back, the father says, you know, this, this son of mine was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. And the brother, the elder brother refuses to engage at that level and says, that son of yours he, he shows his cards, right? He doesn't share the father's heart for the ones the father loves. He unbrothers himself, is what Miroslav Wolf says in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, that he, he unbrothers himself by saying, that son of yours. And it just proves how lost he is. He puts performance and conditions on the relationship. He slaves dutifully for the father and I would say that our unwillingness to relate to others the way God has chosen to relate reveals the degree to which we have not been gripped by His heart for us and for the world. In fact, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we brought this up in Acts chapter 2, he, he talks about the, the, the idea of a community, your wish dream for a community, what you wish the community would be like. He says, if you, if you love your wish dream... You'll actually do violence to the community itself, He says to pursue a wish dream or keep a wish dream alive is to end up violating the thing itself because what we end up doing, Bonhoeffer says, is that we, uh, we elevate a reality that is actually just abstract and we miss the reality that is concrete. And he he talks about how important it is to be in Christian community and have our wish dreams totally disillusioned. He says we're better off if we are disillusioned from our wish dreams, because in the end, we can actually love people as they are, right? And we can actually build community based on what it is. Now, I totally understand that community is an utter buzzword from the early 2000s. So if you prefer, just call it relationship that resembles Jesus okay? And so the reality, though, for a Christian community is that it is a necessity. And I want to show you that it's a necessity in Paul's life. It's very easy to think maybe perhaps the leaders don't need it, right? Or that uh, if it's more mature to somehow not need community. This is actually a lie from the enemy. What Paul does is he is greeted by the brothers, and it says, Luke says that he thanked God and took courage, that, that his courage was like notched up because other people came, right? Because he's there, he's like, he's on, on trial, he's, he's, uh, he's imprisoned, and these people come and they give him courage. In fact, he even says this back in his letter to them in Romans 1, he says this, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Yeah, I want to make a difference in your life. But then listen to what he says. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to come, and I want to serve you, and I want to impart what God's given me, but I want to do that mutually. Your faith building me up just as much as my faith is building you up. The apostle Paul said that. This is a guy who takes shipwrecks like it's just an ibuprofen, like he just just takes it, right? And I just want to say to you, if Paul needed to community as this mutual thing then so do we the author of hebrews says let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near and you cannot be in a mutual encouragement relationship with someone you have no proximity to It actually requires presence. I want to just offer three practical things we give. Um, When when we see uh, the church as an option among other activities, it's easy to cut out. But when we see through Paul's eyes that we actually need one another, I need uh, need Christ's body because I find Christ in his body, uh, then I actually will give myself to it. Three things to give. The first is we give presence through time. Very simple. Um, to say to other people, you matter enough for me to flip my phone upside down, you ma-, or even away. Uh, that's crazy, I know. Or you matter enough for me to be with and not make you feel bad about it. All right? <clears throat> Not to be preoccupied. To be preoccupied is to, arrive, is to be somewhere before you arrive there, right? Like your mind's somewhere that your body hasn't caught up to yet. That's not actually presence. <clears throat> and so we give presence through time. We just actually carve out and say, yeah, every other week I'm going to be a community. We're going to bring a dish. Or every, you know, I choose to be with the, ga- the believers as we gather. I choose to get together over a meal the second thing is we give truth uh, through transparency. That is, I let you see me as I am. Uh, I, I give you who I am, where I am, why I am, the way I am. Right? I let you see it. Right? I let you see what's there. Uh, <clears throat> um, and it's, it is a, a gift of grace to let other people in on your story. And you receive it from others. And then the third thing is you give permission through vulnerability. Transparen- transparency says you can see me for who I am, right? Uh, but vulnerability says I'll let you speak into who I am. I'll let you tell the truth about God to me. And when I talk to you about where I feel shame in my life, you, you get to pronounce good news. And where I talk to you about how I'm feeling fear, you, you get to listen and pronounce good news. Not to fix it, but to bear gospel realities. And when these begin to happen, trust is built, and the result is we aren't just hanging out, we're actually fellowshipping with brothers and sisters. And there's room for confession to become normal, and room for encouragement to become real, and room for prayer to become vibrant, and room for love to actually hit home and steal our nerve as we face the rest of our life. This is the necessity of Christian community. Every human on the planet, I believe, is asking the question, am I loved? do I belong? Am I significant? And the gospel answers affirmatively, yes, in Christ. But where does that become a real experience? It only becomes a a vibrant, experienced reality with siblings, with brothers and sisters. And that's where we experience who we are as our siblings share their story. That's why community matters so much. Um, And so, The next thing we see, though, is the orienting power of hope. Let's read this next bit. Um, After three days, so, nope, sorry, next bit. Uh, When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. He can't go into their synagogue because he's housebound, so he calls the synagogue to him. Right, this is his normal practice, we've seen it in every city. And now he calls the synagogue to him. Uh, And he said to them, Brothers There's that language again, right? He relates as a sibling, not above him, not below him, but across from him. Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He's recounting his story. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. He's telling his story. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my own nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We haven't actually received any letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil against you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are with regard to this sect that is the way or Christianity. We know that everywhere it is spoken against. We don't know about anything with you, but we know in general people aren't loving Christians too much. I read this book. I finished it this last week. It's by David Brooks. It goes back to, I think, 2004. It's called On Paradise Drive. And uh, And he's asking this question, what motivates Americans to achieve the way they do, to purchase the way they do, to move and shop and work the way they do? Uh, And he notes just how deeply ambitious and achievement-oriented we are from, like, little kid, little league, through college and the workplace. And he just maps this out, and it's pretty brilliant observations. And there's this constant desire in the American people, he says, to achieve more and it's rooted in what Brooks calls living under a paradise spell, that Americans are a future-oriented people. Like, this is how we roll. Like, we see possibility, and why wouldn't we achieve it? Right? This is actually it's not, a, not a terrible trait, right? And yet, there's a dark side to it. It creates an anxiety for the constant weight of having to achieve things independently, And so what Paul talks about here is not just this paradise spell of I can make my life more comfortable, more secure, uh, but it's actually what I would call a suffering hope, the type of hope that has a steadfastness in the face of imprisonment. It's not a hope of a prosperity gospel that if I just plug in the right things, if I put the coins in the divine slot machine and I pull, I'm going to get all sevens or whatever. I, I don't think I've been to a slot machine since I've followed my grandma around a casino when I was a little kid. But, uh, and what you get, though, is this idea that if I push in the right things, I'll get the payout, and the payout will look like the American dream. And so what Brooks describes is a people under a spell, but that spell is deeply individualistic and materialistic. When Paul is under, is under hope, which is confidence of something already accomplished. Uh, And so it's not just, I can get a better material life now, but it's Jesus has actually conquered the grave, and we'll celebrate this next week. The resurrection of Jesus is the hope of Israel, and hope for him is firm because he's already tasted it. He's met the risen Christ And the presence of chains don't nullify Christian hope. They don't make Jesus any less alive. In fact, the Jews say at the end of their introduction to Paul that the Christian faith is spoken of poorly all over the world, but Luke has the last word in Acts, and it's that living hope where we see Paul speaking the gospel unhindered. Even if it's spoken of poorly, the gospel still goes out unhindered. What are we saying here? We're saying that we are a people who are not oriented by the immediate. We may choose to be, but we don't have to be. The gospel reorients our lives, not around the immediate, but the eternal. We're not oriented by our potential to achieve. We're oriented by God's promise that is sure. And that is a huge difference. We're not therefore oriented by anxiety of what might be, but we're actually oriented around the actuality of what has happened. Are you with me? This is Christian hope. And so the follower of Jesus doesn't ever live with a what-if that ends up threatening their security. We live with what Peter calls a living hope. In first Peter, he says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, as we talked about last week, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're always in attention. The American prosperity gospel and Paul's Jesus-centered suffering hope don't mix well. They're incompatible. We were in Target the other night, and my son has a dream of becoming a professional baseball player, and if that doesn't work out, he says NBA will be fine. And I, <laughs> and I love him, and I love his ambition, and he's goal-oriented, and it's killer. But at the same time, I understand how it will kill him if he doesn't shift hope to Jesus. And I'm watching him do it, and it's fun. But he says to me, yeah, I have a plan. When I'm in the, uh, when I I think I want to be a first baseman, and um, I should do okay, and I think I can buy an upstairs house, two dogs, and some nice cars. And I said, an upstairs house, if you're in the Bowen family, an upstairs house means you have arrived, apparently. (laughs) So I don't know. Lauren and I like the ranch, but anyway, um, <laughs> he, uh, he has this vision, and that, but what's so cute about him is he, he checks in with me. I'm just going, uh-huh, 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 and he goes, um, do you think that's okay that I want that? I said, you know, Milo, I think that's totally fine that you want that, I, and I can support it as long as you can answer two questions for me, Uh uh-huh, <laughs> right? I want to know. Um, I want to know how you intend to elevate others above yourself. I want to know how you leave the world better than you found it because of that pursuit. If you can answer those two things, and those two things line up, then that's awesome. But those don't line up for you. I'm telling you, it's not going to be good. Like you're going to be chasing something. And so these two dreams, the American dream and the kingdom hope, don't really mix well. Jurgen Moltmann, uh, 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 this uh, German theologian, says that the hope, those who hope in Christ, can no longer put up with reality as it is. If you have that hope, you can't actually put up with reality as it is. So Christian hope doesn't actually cause you to retreat from the world, it causes you to engage in it. He says, Those who have this hope no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world, for the goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. He says, when I know what the kingdom of God looks like, I can't handle racism. When I know what the kingdom of God looks like, I can't handle those close to me suffering in poverty. When, it, when I know what the kingdom of God looks like, I, I, I can't suffer unreconciled relationship. I'm going to move toward it. Do you, do you understand And so he says that in practical opposition to things as they are and in creative reshaping of them, Christian hope calls them in question and thus serves the things that are to come. That's why I said, Milo, if you can tell me how that actually elevates others above yourself, if that leaves the world better than you found it, then let's pursue that. Because the Christian hope is one that serves the situation that is to come and it leaves the existing situation behind and seeks for opportunities of bringing history into ever better correspondence to the promised future. This is Jürgen Moltmann, and I think it's quite profound. What does it mean? It means that we live prodded by the future hope that orients our action in the present. Chains or not, doesn't matter. We're called to live as a sign and a foretaste of the future. That's why Christian hospitality matters. As you invite the other into your home, it's a signpost of a future banquet table. As we practice community, we're practicing a future city that will be a gathering of every tribe and nation. When we celebrate, it puts God at the center of our affections because in the future heavenly city, God's at the center of it. When we collaborate with others for his kingdom purposes, it's a sign of the future because his rule will never end hope doesn't dull Christian uh, Christians into passivity. Hope actually orients us passionately. And so we pray and work to see the kingdom come and God's will to be done on earth as in heaven. Okay, let's Move towards the end of acts twenty eight verse twenty three when they had appointed a day for him, they came to his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them testifying to the Christian or to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets and Some were convinced by what he said, and others disbelieved. This is always the dynamic of gospel preaching whenever we lay out good news, some will hear and receive, and others will reject. And what's particularly interesting about this is that it reveals there's no neutrality to the message of the gospel. There's no, I'm in the middle. It's either Jesus is king or he's not. Neutrality is a myth. And verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, they departed, and after Paul had made one statement, he said this, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet notice that he attributes the spirit work behind Isaiah's text he quotes Isaiah 6 go to this people and say you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes they can barely ears they can barely hear and with their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and i would turn and i would heal them paul says therefore after quoting Isaiah 6, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So he calls back to Isaiah and says, some of you are following the example of ancient Israel and you're hardening your heart to God's mercy and your, his grace. And you're just like those previous generations. So the invitation is going to continue out to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. He finishes Luke finishes the story by saying he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The last thing I want to say, and I'll do it quickly, is that there is a priority to sharing the gospel message. There's three things in it. There's urgency, there's offense, and there's clarity. Paul is urgent. He wastes no time. He welcomes all because it's urgently available to all. The good news is for all. And he said, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you and wants to reconcile you to himself. And so he's urgent. He wastes no time getting the synagogue into his own house. He makes arrangements so that they can hear the gospel. And he expounds the message of the scriptures about Jesus from morning till night, which some of you right now, I understand, feels like this last message on Acts is becoming. So (laughs) we'll end soon. And so Paul does this. Uh, there's an urgency to it. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but I remember I was in high school and I, God was working in my heart in a way that was orienting me around hope. And I was becoming convinced that Jesus was in fact good news. And to the point where it was bubbling up and I had to tell peers about it. But before that happened, There was this girl, April, and she seemed kind of beyond the pale and very disinterested, and I kind of didn't want to torque her off, right? And one night, another friend of hers invited her to some church youth group event, and it was some other girl that wasn't even a part of our youth group. And I remember on the drive home, April looked me in the eye and said, how come you've never invited me before? And it just messed me up. I was ashamed of the gospel, right? I had no urgency, and it just stung me to the core. And she said, why wouldn't you have invited me? <laughs> and I don't know what God ended up doing in her life, but I know this, that he used that question to goad me and to provoke me to see the urgency that we have a gospel on which our lives utterly depend, and therefore it is a gospel on which other lives depend. Let that stir up urgency for you as we finish Acts. And then there is an offense to it. And I had, I had backed off because of the offense of the gospel. But Paul continues to preach with urgently, aware of the offense. There's always an offense that says, you're not running your life that well. You need another king to do it. And when you come to that place in your life where you realize, I actually am broken, I am messed up, and I'm not running my life in a way that leads to righteousness and justice and fruit, I'm leading my life in a way of selfishness, that offense becomes welcome because the gospel comes and says, not only are you more wicked than you ever dared imagine, you're more loved and accepted and valued than you ever dared hope. And if you don't have those two things together, you don't have the gospel. And so he ends, though, with gospel clarity. There's urgency, there's offense, but there's always clarity. He's clear. It is the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some get-rich program. It's not some manage-your-morals-better program. It is Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, this is good news for you. There's clarity to it. And there's a clarity of Paul preaching in the Roman capital that there is another king besides Caesar. He says, to a a context that's used to hearing good news, Caesar is Lord, Paul is saying, no good news, Jesus is Lord. And it is that kind of contrast that creates urgency, welcomed all, offense of a rival kingdom and clarity that it is Jesus alone that is good news. And so here's my prayer for us as we wrap up this series on Acts, that we would share the same urgency, bearing its offense winsomely in our world, totally clear about what is true good news, that we would see the gospel message reverberate out from us, not me on Sundays alone, but you all, us all, as the kingdom people on mission without hindrance as the story moves forward. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit that we would be a people who are captured by the story of Jesus and continue the story faithfully as siblings in community, oriented by the hope of resurrection and boldly preaching the gospel for the sake of the world. Lord, we believe Jesus is good news. Who he is and what he's done. There's no other game in town and there's no other other name under heaven by which we can find life in its fullest. And so now, Lord, we come to the table to take the bread of life and the cup of the new covenant in your blood as you have secured us there to be loved, to belong, and to share in your significance. Amen.